In my place condemned, he stood. The biblical pattern of the atonement. This is part nine. Probably four more weeks of study on this subject. And here's the title I've given, and I think it boils the issue down at least as clearly as I know how to do it. Did Jesus die to show God suffers with us, or did he die to show God suffers for us? The text I want to start with is Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25. Romans 4, 22 to 25. Please have a Bible. This church, you need a Bible when you come whether it's on your iPad, iPhone, or you actually have one of these. Remember these? Whatever you have, make sure you're following along and not just watching TV. Romans 4, 22 to 25. This is why his faith, talking about Abraham, just so you know. This is why his faith was, quotes, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, quote, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. That's an amazing thing that you're reading in the text there. What you're reading is God the Holy Spirit saying, when I quote these words from Abraham, he's saying, I'm thinking about Cedarview Community Church. Like, it's amazing. I'm thinking about you when I quote this text. So if there's ever a time when you'd say, God's word just says, Cedar View, listen, I put this here specifically for you, the New Testament church. Then we need to really listen carefully to what's being said. The words, 23, it was counted to him, quote, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, that's Father God, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up, that's Jesus, for our trespasses and raised, that's from the grave, raised for our justification. Before we get into examining in detail the ideas that are kind of strung together in that text, I want to take a few minutes flying over the title that I chose for this teaching. Did Jesus die to show God suffers with us, underlining with, or did he die to show God suffers for us? I mean, the point is no one drains that much energy over the fact that a person named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by Roman orders during Passover. Atheists, agnostics, by and large, if they're informed at all, Christians of all stripes, they're pretty much agreed on that because it just can't be denied. It's the meaning of that event. That's what divides the world, really. Not that it happened. And many people are more comfortable with the idea that Jesus died to suffer with us than that he suffered for us. And what I want to say, first of all, is it really matters which way you answered. You got a different religion, depending on how you answer that question. 
The two answers are different answers, not the same answer. And you only have to study the vehemence with which some evangelicals are starting to pick their camp. You realize that everyone knows there's a lot at stake here. For example, against the Jesus died for us view, consider the caustic words of Polly Toynbee, leader of the British Humanist Society. She reviewed the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis fame. She reviewed that in The Guardian. And the article was simply entitled, Narnia Represents Everything That Is Most Hateful About Religion. Apparently, she didn't get the tolerance memo. In the article, she writes, of all the elements of Christianity, now notice, suddenly it's not religion. It's Christianity. Not Islam, not Judaism, not Hinduism. Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Who asked him to? Or consider these words of Pastor Alan Jones in his book, Reimagining Christianity. By the way, Reimagining Christianity. I get this a lot. Okay, this, is, this isn't the sermon. A little blurb. I get this a lot. Usually if parents are thinking their kids aren't really following Jesus, rather than admitting they're not following Jesus, what I hear from parents over and over is, you know, their Christianity is just going to look different from your Christianity. And, and it's kind of like all of the darts are stuck in the wall over here, so let's take the dartboard and just hang it over there. But you haven't, you haven't changed anything or fixed anything. It's just that it's too painful for us to admit we've got a generation that is drifting from Christ it's a lot easier to say, you know, their Christianity is just going to look a little different, Pastor Don, from the one you grew up in. Now, if you, if you mean we don't put those stupid transparencies on overheads anymore, I get it. There are things that change. But if you're talking about the atonement, you can't change the atonement without creating a different religion. It's not Christianity anymore. Pastor John Allen Jones, in his book, Reimagining Christianity, he writes of a, quote, thread of just criticism that addresses the suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine. I don't doubt for one minute the power of sin and evil in the world or the power of sacrificial love as their antidote antidote. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> this love is an antidote. And how's that been working so far? Alan continues, but making God vengeful all in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church, lost to the church forever. And so, so, if, if, if people come to not like the message of the church, which the church claims is divine revelation, well, then the church needs to 
church needs to adjust. We've got to find something people are going to like. I mean, that's what Walmart does. Rob Bell, who's, boy, he's kind of faded from memory now, but one of his first books was Velvet Elvis, and in it he argues more generally that the important thing in Christianity is not doctrines, but living like living like Jesus lived, WWJD. Put it on your wrist. Precisely why it's important to live like Jesus lived, or the solution if we can't live like Jesus lived, or the result if we refuse to live like Jesus lives. Well, it's not really clear once the doctrine of judgment and atonement is taken away. So there it is. The important thing isn't doctrine, but living like Jesus lived. Kind of a social justice thing. We have a wonderful model of Jesus as the patient, innocent, loving sufferer on the cross. There, that's how you do it. The idea that he is paying for my sins somehow at least recedes into the background. But you need to stop and at least ask this question. The judgment of God, the wrath of God against sin is not something we should fear. It's something we should take great comfort in. I don't know if you're watching the news, depending on which news you watch, but in a lot of American cities and some Canadian cities, in a lot of American cities, one of the big problems that they're facing is people don't feel that crime is being punished. So officers arrest someone for a crime and uh, district attorneys, they let them off. They're back out on the street. Uh, One guy had 104, 104 previous arrests, let out every time and killed somebody. And so you stop and think, do, do you, do you, want to live in a world where someone in charge has absolutely no hatred of evil deeds. In other words, do you want to live in a world where someone in charge just says, well, I hope there are enough good examples around that it will just sort of cancel out any bad people and bad deeds and wickedness. Do you want to live in a world where the person in charge has no hatred whatsoever of, of pedophiles and drug dealers. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Well, no, you don't feel safe in a world like that. What brings you comfort is someone in a position of authority who hates wickedness. And that's the image of God that you get in the scriptures. When someone who's in authority, picture our local, a local scene, hates wickedness, that's a loving act toward the rest of society. So again, our opening question is one we need to bring to our text. Did Jesus endure suffering and death with us, providing a wonderful example of love and forgiveness in the face of tragic mistreatment, or did he die for us as a substitute and as atonement? Point number one. There's an important, unbreakable link between this week's text And last week's text. I don't expect you to remember last week's text, but I'm going to read it to you. Here's what we studied last Sunday morning. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That means the stuff we've been studying in in, uh, Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, the law and the prophets. Paul says, they say the same thing I'm saying. That's what Paul is saying. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Sorry. This was to show God's righteousness. It doesn't say his love. It does that, but his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So, the righteousness we need and the righteousness we receive, we receive by faith, verse 22. We receive it as a gift, verse 24. So, so that means Paul is emphatic that the righteousness we receive, we receive apart from what we merit or deserve. That's what the word grace means, verse 24. In other words, in other words, no one will score any points by following the example of Jesus. That would be meriting grace, which is an impossibility. Finally, Paul says that the righteousness we receive through faith, verse 22, it comes as a result of Christ bearing God's wrath as a propitiation, 25. And when God did this great work in God the Son, he was revealing not just his love, but even more important, his justice, verse 26. He was just because in his love for sinners, he judged our sin. I know what some of you are thinking. How come I could restate the main points of last week's teaching in three minutes this week and needed 45 last week? That's a great question. Now, to see the link between these texts, take another look at today's text, Romans 4, 22 to 25. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verses 23 and 24, they speak specifically about Abraham. And Paul's whole point is Abraham was justified by his faith, not his works. That's what he's saying. So in other words, the idea of not establishing our righteousness by our efforts at following a good example. That's not a new idea. Abraham was justified by freely imputed Romans 3, 
righteousness. So, if you want to erase or revamp or edit substitutionary atonement, you have to do more than just undo Paul's theology. Well, he's a bit of a, you know. You have to do more than just undo Paul's theology or the words of Jesus in the Gospels. You actually have to go back and redo the whole Old Testament. This is the pattern of biblical atonement. So maybe we should be looking for another answer to our title question. Did Jesus die to show God suffers with us or for us? And Paul has four facts about Christ's death. They're all in Romans 4.25. So point number two. Jesus didn't just happen to die. We know he was killed. I mean, the words died and killed and even death, they aren't used at all in the Greek text. But we know that's what Paul means when he says Jesus was delivered up for us all because he contrasts delivered up with being raised from the dead. So we know delivered up means dying. In the wisdom of Father God, Jesus' death is a, well, it's a non-contested truth to this day. That's because Jesus didn't die quietly in some hospital ward and he wasn't hit by a bus on some back road. He was publicly executed. Witnesses were present. Records were kept. We know the details of our Lord's crucifixion. Somehow we aren't shocked by it. I mean, that anyone should end up worshiping someone who died so disgracefully is nothing short of astounding. I mean, honestly, would you send your little son, your little three-year-old daughter, would you send them alone, unsupervised, to visit convicts on death row? Most of us, even the most broad-minded, we know deep in our heart that we wouldn't, and we know why we wouldn't. There are a lot of desperate, disgusting situations. We don't trust those people. We don't want our children around them unprotected. Yet, yet, Christianity is noted for the criminal executed nature of its visible founder. I mean, consider, no other religion in the world would allow its leader to be portrayed in such terms. Buddha was in his 80s when he died peacefully. Confucius was in his 70s. Muhammad was in his 60s. And there would be nothing but bloodshed and terror if he was even insinuated that any of these people were executed as criminals. Muslims think they're doing Christians a favor by saying Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Somehow a body switch was made, somebody else died, and the prophet Jesus was rescued. So, no. If you're trying to make up a good, believable religion you'd certainly portray your leader in a better light than the Gospels reveal. Jesus dies a brutal, dirty death, executed in his early 30s. He never saw middle age before his criminal execution. He was killed. Point number three. Jesus was executed by human hands, but he was killed for a divine purpose. That's in 425 pretty clearly. Who was who was delivered up 
for our trespasses. The fact that Jesus died isn't that disputed. There's just too much historic evidence to close our eyes and pretend that it didn't happen. We know the date. I mean, within days, at least, we know the date. We know the place. The event itself can't be ignored. It's why Jesus died. That divides the crowd. Many people will grant the power of love displayed in Christ's death. He was selfless. He was innocent. He was certainly misunderstood. He was despised. We have a great example of how beautiful, self-giving love can be. People can be blind and wicked, and God knows what it's like to encounter mankind at its worst. Let's, let's live in love like Jesus. It's fine. Except it's not what our text says. The problem is, honest people sooner or later have to deal with actual words. Paul clearly says Jesus died. It's right there. Let me just, let me just clean this up. He died for our trespasses. Notice my next sentence, please. Jesus didn't just die as a result of trespasses, Jewish, Roman, or otherwise, but for trespasses. He died to cover them, to atone for them, to forgive them, to bear God's judgment for them. All of that is what Paul means very precisely, very specifically in that little phrase, he died for our trespasses, for them. The the truth is it's very hard to see how the cross can be a model of love if Jesus didn't die for our sins the way Paul describes. A great theologian of a generation ago, James Denny, he wrote of the atonement and used a a famous example now of a man sitting on the end of the Brighton Pier. And you can imagine him falling off into those dangerous, turbulent waters. A second man comes along and he hears screams for help. He jumps into the icy waters to save the first man, but in dragging that first man to safety, he himself drowns. Now, Danny says, that's an example of heroic, genuine love. The second swimmer's self-sacrifice rescued the first. And so Christians believe the cross was indeed an act of selfless love because it accomplished something on our behalf. But, but it's hard to see how the cross can be either selfless or loving if it's disconnected from God's rescuing work of our sins. Look at Danny's simple illustration again. Imagine the same man, he's sitting at the end of the Brighton Pier, he's fishing, he's eating an egg salad sandwich. Suddenly a second man goes racing by, screaming, I'll save you, I save you. And to the fisherman's horror, jumps off the end of the pier and drowns. What we all want to know is, why did this man jump off the pier? 
What did his death accomplish? In what sense was it a loving act? Why did this death happen? And most importantly, is there any honest way in which this man's tragic death could seriously be called an act of love or even an act of sacrifice? The whole point in Denny's great illustration is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, once it's removed from its atoning, wrath-bearing, forgiving mission, it turns out to be just an unfortunate or at best confused, deluded, a la Jesus Christ superstar kind of action. The whole Bible, however, and the New Testament in particular, insists on attaching specific divine accomplishment and atoning meaning in the death of God the Son on the cross. And that's why, in the same consistent language with Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, all of which we've studied, Paul tells us Jesus died for our trespasses. Point number four. God the Father was involved in the death of God the Son, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now we press a bit deeper into the text. We start to see what wasn't maybe as obvious at first glance. We start to see why Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, didn't just say Jesus died. That word is never used in the text. There's something else going on in the Holy Spirit's mind as these writings are inspired. The one who rules all the events of history delivered him up for our trespasses. And the depth of our pride is revealed in the way our proud culture chafes against the revealed beauty of that truth. People twist the storyline of the triune God revealed in the Bible, and they choose not to behold the love of Father God. They paint Jesus as a victim who must somehow try his best to hold back a mean, disgruntled deity who would rather fry us all in hell than give us one more chance. Listen to those words from Doug Paget in his book, A Christianity Worth Believing. He says, quote, I'm not sure I would have been interested in the Christian faith if the story on the stage had been about a removed God who needed to be placated with a blood offering before he was willing to cross the chasm and participate with humanity. In this view, God is not a softy, but rather a hard-nosed, immovable, infallible judge who cannot abide defiance to the law, and boy, do we defy it. As misguided as those words are, they're the words of a very clever writer. He sets the stage for this argument with a background idea, but he does it so quickly, you can miss it. We're paying so much attention to the magician who's about to pull the rabbit out of the hat that we're missing what's going on behind his back 
It's slick. It's quickly stated the assumption in the background. Do you see it? To set Paget, the set Paget paints to make the rest of the play look good. It's right there in the opening few sentences. It goes like this. I'm not sure I would have been interested in the Christian faith if the story on the stage had been about a removed God who needed to be placated by the blood offering before he was willing to cross the chasm and participate with humanity. Removed God. Wait a minute. It's done so fast you almost miss it. Is this the God we believe in? Does the New Testament really describe God as a removed deity? Was he really unwilling to, quote, cross the chasm and participate with humanity? I mean, how much of the New Testament do you have to unwrite to say stuff like that? Unwilling to cross the chasm. This God who comes all the way down in human flesh to take upon himself all the pains, tangles, guilt of human flesh and nature. Is, is this the God Doug Paget says is unwilling to cross the chasm? Can, can he possibly be describing the same God Paul describes? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's just horrible confusion at this point. It's the only reason I'm taking more time with it is because it's becoming the, the rabbit out of the hat view in much of the progressive church. So let me describe two kinds of atonement, the two pictures that are painted. First, there are those who see the cross with no appreciation of the Trinity at work. They will never get the cross right. They see, like Doug Paget, a poor, good fellow trying to spill blood to placate a distant, primitive deity. You know, like some poor, uncivilized, primitive person throwing his firstborn into the mouth of a volcano to placate the gods. And then there's Christianity. Let me describe Christianity to you. Christianity is the revelation of a God, a God who does all the redeeming work himself. He is the one who comes all the way down. He is the one who enters lovingly into our fallen mess. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Who is it on the cross? It's God. Five. I'm jumping around a bit. You guys up there must be going out of your minds. Five. Jesus was raised for our justification. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. Just a minute. And raised for our justification. That's what comes next. I guess I didn't have it on the slide. 
The only place in the New Testament where that phrase is used. It's the only place raised for a justification. Why here? Why here? It's unique. It's very powerful. But it does require a bit of unpacking because we usually think of Christ's death as the means of our justification. We don't typically think of his resurrection as the means of our justification. So what's on Paul's mind here? Very quickly, I'm starting to wrap up. Here's what I think we're being prodded into remembering. If all this is true, the true meaning of the atonement, if the deep meaning of the cross goes right to the root of God's just wrath against my sin and his loving removal of that wrath through the substitutionary atoning death of God the Son, then there's a lot at stake for everyone sitting here listening to me today. There's a lot at stake. We need not only to be told about God's great loving rescue mission, we need to know it worked. We need assurance that God's just wrath against Don Horbin's sin, I need to know that that wrath is completely terminated forever. That's what I need to know. Only how can I know that? Where does my peace and my rest and my confidence put down anchor? Where do I find certainty? And that's where, that's why, and that's where Paul's words come into play. Jesus, he says, was raised for our justification. And he means for all of us to track through the steps of logic with him. The wages of sin is death. If Jesus stayed dead, well, I would never know that my justification was a finished accomplishment. I mean, we all die because we're sinners. Some die young, some die old, but we all die. Nobody's getting out of here alive. We all die because we're sinners. And when Jesus died, It was for my sin. We know that because he was sinless. He didn't die for his own sin. But, and this is the point of the whole message. I need something infinitely more than someone to carry the guilt of my sin. That's precious. I need someone to atone for my sin so successfully that the divine, visible penalty of sin, death, I need to know that's been terminated. That the cross was so effective that the penalty of sin is terminated forever. For Jesus in his resurrection and for me in my future resurrection. So yeah, it's easy to make the atonement smaller. You can take all the stunning, shocking, revealed elements out. I'm just telling you in love, you are never going to be saved by any example. Never, 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 never are you going to be saved by a great example. And the best example, the highest ever, well, that's more unattainable for me than a crummy one. Stay close to the biblical atonement, church. It's not cold doctrine. Your future's at stake. Your future's at stake. Every time you stand by some coffin at a funeral service or a graveyard, You need to know Jesus was raised for your justification 
and that your sin was so completely atoned for that the punishment that your sin brings you has been erased as well. And that's good news. That's good news. He was delivered up for my trespasses. And he was raised for my justification. And I'm in Christ. And everybody said, 